Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 1.26, Religion in New England. This week, I want to get the ground set for what is going to be the next two episodes following this one. In those episodes, we are going to be delving into the evolving political landscape in New England. Before doing that, however, I think it is important that we spend some time looking at the religious situation in New England and how it evolved throughout the 1630s and 40s. As we have discussed so many times before, religion and politics are completely intertwined. It is almost impossible to look at one without considering the other. We have already spent a lot of time talking about religion, and I don't plan to rehash all of it again. Rather, I want to lay out some of the more serious controversies of the period— specifically the ones that will affect the story moving forward. I plan to look at the specific role of the church in society, and then I'm going to talk about Anne Hutchinson as an example of the church's control in the Bay Colony. If you have been paying basically any attention over the past four or so months, then you have probably picked up on the fact that the Bay Colony is the center of the New England world. Sure, the guys over in Plymouth were in New England first, but from that first moment that the Bay Colony existed, they were the colony that was calling the shots in New England. Nothing I say today is really going to change that, but what I do want to establish is that there is the different religious factions that appear throughout New England, as it is going to make a difference to the political systems we see moving forward. Now, as a very quick refresher, the Puritans are separated into two primary groups. You have the Separatists who view the Anglican Church as being so corrupt that there is no saving it, and full separation is the only path to salvation. The other group wanted to reform the Church from within, but was not looking to actually separate from that Church. The Pilgrims over in Plymouth were Separatists and wanted nothing to do with the old Church of England. Meanwhile, over in Massachusetts, the belief was that reform from within was the best way to go. Now, of course, history isn't going to be so kind as to give us such clear-cut divisions. Even within these groups, there is often stark differences between the members. Roger Williams is a very good example of this. Williams was a separatist. However, he was shunned by not only the Puritans in Massachusetts, but also the other separatist Puritans over in Plymouth over his radical ideologies. Williams brought in ideas like the separation of religion and government, something that is going to become a big deal for the future United States, however at this time was seen as being dangerously radical. The perceived danger of Roger Williams is not something that we are going to see abate anytime soon. When we see the New England Confederation form in a few years' time, it will include Massachusetts, New Haven, Plymouth, and Connecticut. Those settlers out in Rhode Island well, they were still considered too radical to be invited into that club and therefore found themselves on the outside looking in. Rhode Island therefore becomes something of a refuge for those whose religion deviates too far from the acceptable practices of one of the other colonies. Things become even more muddled when looking at the events down in Connecticut. Connecticut was founded in large part from those who had come from Plymouth, so there is going to be a large separatist contingent there that would exist. They are going to coexist with the Puritans from up in Massachusetts, who were decidedly not separatists. As we will discuss next time, Connecticut is also going to end up enacting a truly important act when they establish an actual written constitution. However, as much fun as that sounds like diving into, it is a story for a future episode. Religiously, Connecticut is going to remain a friendly place for the separatists. 
Well, there may have been fundamental differences between those living in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. It is critical to remember that these are all highly religious people. Sometimes it is easy to think about somebody like Roger Williams as not being as religiously devout as, say, John Winthrop down in Massachusetts. However, that's not really true. Yeah, the role of the church in government and questions over how the church should reform itself do exist. However, the basic facts remain that these were all very religious people. Regardless of where you lived in New England, religion was the core to your daily existence. None of this should come as any surprise as the vast majority of those in New England are the people who are fleeing the persecution in England under William Laud. As we have discussed before, all the Puritans are Calvinists. They all have that in common. As became a major deal during the Reformation, the Puritans believed that it was important to have direct access to the holy texts. Remember, this is one of the biggest driving forces behind the Reformation and why the invention of the printing press was so key to why the Reformation could take place. This is going to have a dramatic effect on the entire region. In order to read the Bible, it meant that New Englanders had a highly literate population. Literate people, unsurprisingly, want their children to be literate as well. This means that schools would be necessary, and sure enough, there are grammar schools throughout New England. This goes a very long ways towards creating what was a highly educated population, at least when comparing it to Europe in general during the 1630s and 40s. The center of everybody's life and of every town was the church. It was not just the place where people went for their religious services, but rather it was the rock that the entire community was built around. One of the cornerstones of having so many churches, and there were a lot of churches, is that you needed people to run those churches. Again, this is going to turn back towards that subject of education. You already have a highly literate population. However, becoming a preacher in the Puritan church required more. It's going to require higher education. Out of that, in 1636, we see a small university founded in Boston for just that need. And that is, of course, Harvard University. It likewise should not be missed that one of the earliest justifications for colonization of New England, or frankly, any of the American colonies, was the proselytization of the Indians. This, however, never really comes to fruition. That isn't to say that there weren't some attempts, there indeed were. However, the historical record isn't really teeming with stories of attempts to convert the Indian tribes. It does seem that it did happen, as there are some accounts of it, but largely it seems as though the English were not all that interested in actually doing missionary work. And likewise, the Indians were really not that interested in being converted. Better attempts will be made by the later part of the 1640s, but for the first two decades or so in New England, missionary work was a very low priority. No matter how you spin things, however, the church was the center of the New England universe. Everything orbited around it. Nowhere does the power and the importance of the church become more important than when you look at what happened when somebody rolls along and challenges that established order. For 1630s New England, there are two names that have become synonymous with challenging the accepted order of the church. We've already met one of them in Roger Williams. However, Williams was not alone in antagonizing basically everybody and flying against the order of the day. It has driven me crazy that over the last few weeks that this person has been flying right under the radar of our story, yet I just couldn't find the right moment to introduce her. However, I am happy to say that that moment is now upon us. 
So welcome to the narrative, Anne Hutchinson. We have discussed the pressure and control that men like John Winthrop attempted to employ in the Bay Colony. In fact, we spent the better part of two episodes talking about that relationship and how it conflicted with men like Roger Williams. However, it would be an erroneous belief to think that Williams was the only pariah that emerged in the history of the early Bay Colony. In fact, in many sources when talking about the struggle to gain control over the religious question in Massachusetts, that conversation turns to two people, and that is namely Williams and Anne Hutchinson. Born in 1591, Lincolnshire, Anne Hutchinson was the daughter of a minor Anglican cleric. Hutchinson's father, despite having a role in the church, appears to have had some strong Puritan leanings, something that he would pass along to his daughter, much to the future annoyance of John Winthrop. At some point during the 16-teens, Hutchinson began following the teachings of John Cotton. We have seen Cotton come up several times in the story so far, as he was the preacher who many of the earliest Puritan colonists were following. Hutchinson herself decided to make the journey to New England in 1633 for the same underlying reasons that so many others did during the Great Migration, namely our friend William Laud. Also influencing her is the fact that Cotton himself had made the journey a year earlier and she wanted to follow the preacher with whom she had grown so close. Arriving in 1634, Hutchinson, along with her husband William, were able to buy a nice estate in Boston. Her husband had been a rather successful merchant and therefore traveled with the means to ensure that his time in Boston was going to be spent comfortably, short as though that time would be. The estate was built in what is now part of downtown Boston and stood until it was destroyed by a fire in 1711. As an interesting side note, the land is now occupied by the Old Corner Bookstore, which has stood as an important site for 19th century American literature. So what was the problem with Anne Hutchinson, and why did she end up drawing the ire of John Winthrop? As we have discussed so many times, including today, the church is the center of life and government in New England. Hutchinson would very quickly become part of that local fabric. What emerges in early Massachusetts was the common practice of the colonists getting together a night or so during the week to discuss the relevant religious topics of the day. Generally, the conversation would start with the sermon from the previous Sunday, and then from there go more in-depth. Think of it as something of a Bible study. Certain colonists would host these discussions and would act as the leader of the conversations. After becoming a member of the Massachusetts Church, Anne Hutchinson fell comfortably into this role, hosting one of these weekly discussions. For Hutchinson, this is something that would give her power and influence. If you're the one who is leading the discussion, not only do you get to choose the topic, but it gives you a pulpit whereby you can express your personal ideas. And Hutchinson, she had ideas. She had well-defined views and beliefs that she is going to make known to everybody. As it was, Hutchinson's views became very popular and very quickly, her weekly discussion became the place to be. The problem for Hutchinson is that her views did not fall in line with the Massachusetts leadership. I'm going to do my best to explain why Anne Hutchinson's views ran so far afoul of the Massachusetts hierarchy. I do, however, want to preface this by stating that, once again, I am not a theologian, and we are about to dive in to complicated theological differences. I'm not planning to dive deep into those theological differences or religious theory. However, I want to simply provide a sense of the debate and then really focus on why it was so problematic to the Bay Colony's leadership. We have discussed previously the idea that the Puritans did not believe that there was much of anything they could do to change their place in the afterlife. 
The belief was that God was omnipotent and had already decided who was going to be saved and who wasn't. If this is taken to its extreme conclusion, you end up with a situation where, religiously at least, you are not bound by the moral laws of the Ten Commandments. After all, if your salvation is predetermined and there is nothing you can do to change it, following the Ten Commandments isn't going to matter. This belief system is known as antinomianism. This was a Puritan community that was, as we talked about just a little while ago, running everything based on the church, the government, their judicial system, indeed their entire lives centered around their Puritan church. Beliefs in antinomianism were a serious threat to disrupt that dichotomy if the followers began to think that the church was pointless as it could not affect their prospects at salvation. Now, it is important to understand that the idea that faith is predetermined is not unique to Anne Hutchinson. In fact, it was a belief held by every Puritan. The idea here was that if God had chosen you for salvation, he would put the covenant of the faith inside of you, which would in turn help you find the salvation that God intended for you. Going to church every week would help you prepare to carry out God's will if you had been chosen for salvation. For the Puritans, you ultimately have no idea if you are going to find salvation in the afterlife. However, good behavior was still socially encouraged because one would assume that the godly man was more likely to be the one chosen to be saved. Anne Hutchinson caused a problem for the Puritans because she was moving in a distinctly antinomian direction. In order for a man to be saved, God had to place the Holy Ghost inside of him and for all intents and purposes take control of that person. She was a staunch advocate for the idea that there was absolutely no way to tell if a person's action had set them on a path toward salvation. In other words, acting in a saintly fashion guarantees absolutely nothing. The Puritans, at least in theory, agreed that predictions of salvation ultimately weren't totally possible, but there were at least clues. Of course, a man of saintly nature would be more likely to be saved. They took this nature as evidence of God's covenant inside the person. And Hutchinson disagreed. The real difference, therefore, between Hutchinson and the established church stance of the day was that Hutchinson truly didn't believe that it was possible at all to predict somebody who was going to be saved. She didn't believe that there were clues. In other words, you could be a horrible person, and because salvation was predetermined, your actions in life no way affected your afterlife. Taken to its logical conclusion, this means that things like church membership, doing good deeds, or attending sermons was a pointlessly futile task. If nothing you do matters, why do it at all? For Winthrop and Company, Hutchinson represented not just an assault on their religious beliefs, she represented a threat to the very fabric of their communities. More troubling, she wasn't alone in these beliefs. She had a voice and was attracting followers. In response, Winthrop did what he did best. He wrote up a laundry list of everything that was wrong with what Hutchinson was saying and how her ideas were leading to dangerous conclusions. Chief amongst his complaints was the idea that the individual who was to be saved could have a direct relationship with God in the form of possessing the Holy Spirit. Puritans at their very core believed that the only way to have a relationship with God was through reading scripture. A direct personal relationship with the Holy Spirit dangerously undermined the need to read and study scripture when they had a direct connection to God. This goes directly to that threat that Hutchinson posed in the community. Her beliefs were inconsistent with Winthrop's city on the hill. 
In fact, in the eyes of John Winthrop, her views threatened to derail the entire project, especially considering that her weekly meetings were getting increasingly popular. Hutchinson had grown so popular that by the end of 1636, there were calls for her system of beliefs to become recognized in the community. Well, Hutchinson herself couldn't preach her own cause due to her being a woman, her brother-in-law, John Wheelwright, fit the bill very nicely. Winthrop, obviously distressed with the idea that Wheelwright would add legitimacy, staunchly opposed his appointment as a pastor. While Winthrop would succeed in preventing Wheelwright from taking the pulpit, in so many ways, this was a Pyrrhic victory. Sure, Wheelwright was not going to openly preach these ideas. However, the shared experience of the fight to get Wheelwright appointed did nothing but solidify Hutchinson's followers. Suddenly, within Massachusetts, and more specifically within Boston, serious factionalism began to emerge between the two groups, led by Winthrop and Hutchinson. Throughout the end of 1636 and into the early months of 1637, a lot of things are about to happen that is going to shape how this whole event is going to play out. Despite keeping Wheelwright off the pulpit, Winthrop had little power at this time. Harry Vane was the governor of the colony, and Vane was at least somewhat friendly to the group led by Hutchinson and Wheelwright. The Hutchinson faction, however, played their cards totally wrong here. They were gaining acceptance and becoming increasingly popular. The problem is that throughout the fall of 1636 and the winter of 1637, they became louder and more vitriolic. They were not talking about coexisting anymore. Hutchinson's faction wanted to purge the church of the old class and replace them with Wheelwright and Hutchinson's approved pastors. Things had now gone too far for the established leadership of the colony, as they suddenly saw the actual threat that Hutchinson and her followers presented. When elections rolled around in the spring of 1637, voters spoke very loudly. Vane was out, Winthrop was back in. Now, back in a position that came with nearly absolute power and with a popular mandate behind him, Winthrop could finally focus on shutting Hutchinson and her followers down for good. The first step for Winthrop was to get control of the spread of ideas. This proved easy enough, as Winthrop enacted new immigration laws that were meant to keep people with like-minded views to Wheelwright and Hutchinson out. Second, Winthrop understood that he must bring all of the church leadership back to his side. In August of 1637, Winthrop held a convention with the leading religious figures of the day. Here, he was able to score a major victory by bringing John Cotton in line with what he found to be the acceptable beliefs. Now, Wheelwright stood on an island all by himself. The government had been purged of sympathizers like Henry Vane, and now John Cotton had decided to tow the party line inside the church. Despite still having a considerable following, Hutchinson and her followers had been divested from actual power within the colony. They had become isolated. These things accomplished, Winthrop was finally ready for the big strike in November. With Hutchinson and company now isolated, this was the time to move and officially kill this movement. The first move came against John Wheelwright, as he was the official face of the movement. Called before the general court in November, Wheelwright was told to give up his teachings and renounce his heresies. Wheelwright predictably refused and thereafter was banished from the colony. Wheelwright would end up going to the New Hampshire region, where he would be at the head of one of the earlier, though not first, colonizational efforts of New Hampshire. However, despite being the official head of the movement, Winthrop recognized that Wheelwright was not the big fish. He needed to bring down Anne Hutchinson. As was the case with Wheelwright, Hutchinson was summoned before the general court to address the accusations against her. 
Now, to be clear, when called before the general court on a civil matter, things like due process simply didn't exist. When those in charge with overseeing your trial are these same people trying to silence you and snuff out your influence in the colony, it's not going to end well for you. For Hutchinson, there was never the slightest hope of winning before the general court. This was going to be a show trial and little else. By all accounts, Hutchinson absolutely dominated her trial. She ran circles around Winthrop and the rest of the court. The trial quickly became a stage for Hutchinson to preach her most closely held beliefs, much to the support of her followers and to the chagrin of Winthrop. Unfortunately for Hutchinson, despite the fact that she won every single point and stood atop every single argument, her fate was essentially predetermined. Anne Hutchinson was banished from the community. For her followers, Intensifying isolation was enough to drive most of them back into line with accepted church doctrine. Those who failed to come to terms with this would end up heading into banishment along with Hutchinson and relocating to Rhode Island to join up with fellow banishee Roger Williams. Just to wrap the story on Anne Hutchinson up, she is going to go on to spend the next several years in Rhode Island. Following the death of her husband the year before, Hutchinson relocated to New Netherland in 1642. In August of 1643, Anne Hutchinson and several of her children were amongst those killed during Hive's War. Well, Anne Hutchinson has now exited our story. I will give you guys just a little bit of a sneak peek into the future. Thomas Hutchinson is her great-great-grandson. We will spend some time with Thomas Hutchinson in the future, as he is going to be the loyalist governor of Massachusetts in the lead-up to the American Revolution. I had wanted to spend today talking about Hutchinson and cover the role of the church in daily life, because it is going to become very important as we spend the next few episodes looking at the developing political systems throughout New England. Religion is such an important linchpin in the lives of those in New England that it is going to prove impossible to separate religious belief from political policies. Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson are two examples of the ironclad control of the government in Massachusetts. Rhode Island, on the other hand, had become a settlement for misfits. Plymouth remains a hotbed of separatism and frankly enjoyed keeping themselves as isolated as possible from the other colonies. Regardless of where you were, the New England colonies were centered around the church. And as we will see, those influences are going to directly affect their political development. I also want to take this opportunity to get across the idea that the Puritan world was split into more than just separatists and non-separatists. I have spent so much time focusing specifically on that division, and it is a substantial one, however it is far from the only difference between the Puritans. Anne Hutchinson was not a separatist, and yet she became just as much of a pariah as the separatist Roger Williams had become. In that way, it is also important to make clear that despite both being run out of town, Hutchinson and Williams held very different belief systems. Them both being banished and finding themselves going to Rhode Island should not be taken as evidence that they had matching beliefs. In the end, the most critical thing for the leadership of the Massachusetts Bay Colony was ensuring that their day-to-day -day existence was not challenged regardless of what the beliefs were. By the end of the 1630s, the Great Migration had concluded. By this point, there was actually something of a population flight going back towards England as men like William Laud and eventually Charles I found themselves losing influence and eventually losing their lives. Within New England, we are going to begin to see changes to the political systems as they all move towards something slightly less authoritarian as we have seen before. None of these changes are going to prove to be more influential than the fundamental orders of Connecticut. 
I have spent a long time so far on this podcast cautioning you from putting too much stock in any single document. However, with the fundamental orders of Connecticut, this is something that does deserve some consideration as being a foundational document in American history. Arguments can be made that this document stands as the original written constitution in the world, so yes, this is going to be a very big deal. Briefly, before I wrap up today, I do want to take just a moment to recognize the fact that as of this episode, the podcast is now an entire year old. I want to very quickly thank everybody who has written me, given me encouragement, feedback, asked me questions, or anybody who has just taken the time to listen. Thank you all so much. I really, truly appreciate it. Next time, we are going to begin the first of two episodes where we're going to move through the New England colonies and look at the political developments throughout the end of the 1630s and through the 1640s. Specifically, next time, we are going to look at the Massachusetts and Plymouth colonies, and then the following episode, we'll dive into Rhode Island and the Fundamental Order of Connecticut. Until next time, once again, thank you so much for listening. And I will see you back here in two weeks' time as we begin discussing the government of Massachusetts and Plymouth. <laughs>